This is The Weekly for Friday, May 31st. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. In a recent tweet, President Donald Trump took aim at former Vice President Joe Biden and his role in the passage of the crime bill 25 years ago. On Twitter, the president wrote, Anyone associated with the 1994 crime bill will not have a chance of being elected. In particular, African Americans will not be able to vote for you. Joe Biden served as the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time. This week, we take an in-depth look at this landmark legislation, how it came about, and what, if any, changes may come. Our guest is Ed Chung. He is vice president of criminal justice reform at the Center for American Progress here in Washington. But first, some background. Here's President Bill Clinton at the crime bill signing ceremony, September 1994. Today, the bickering stops. The era of excuses is over. The law-abiding citizens of our country have made their voices heard. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. From this day forward, let us put partisanship behind us and let us go forward, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, law enforcement, community leaders, ordinary citizens. Let us roll up our sleeves to roll back this awful tide of violence and reduce crime in our country. We have the tools now. Let us get about the business of using them. Ed Chung, as you hear, then President Bill Clinton from the South Lawn of the White House, September of 1994. How and why did the crime bill come about? Well, one of the things that we have to remember is that the crime bill was not just a one-year-in-the-making type of legislation. It is a very big bill. And so anytime you have one of those big bills, it takes years to start. It takes years to uh, get passed. And so this bill was years in the making when crime about three years earlier, had peaked at all-time highs. Violent crime rates were about double than what it is today. Um, Crime rates in general were about double the rates they are today. And so the response that Congress was trying to fashion here was a response to elevated crime rates. And I think nobody can deny that, and nobody can deny the fact that we were looking at a country that was different in terms of uh, violent crime, in terms of crime than we are today. But the the fashioning of this, again, took years, and it was a series of bills before that that led to the actual 94 crime bill that were all related together. And among the issues, three strikes and you're out, and also tough penalties that has resulted in mass incarceration. That's correct. And again, to kind of give a little bit more context, in the 80s, the federal uh, mandatory minimums had really been elevated and raised, and mostly for drug crimes. And what the 94 crime bill essentially did was incentivize states to continue in this kind of tough-on-crime way and replicate what's been happening, what the federal government was doing, but also continue what they had originally, the states, had been doing all along. So to give our audience a sense of what the debate was all about in the early 1990s, the mayor of New York at the time, Rudy Giuliani, appearing on C-SPAN's Washington Journal with this question from Susan Swain, August of 1994. This bill offers significant approaches to reduce that crime now and in the years to come. How? Well, in a number of different ways. It it attacks it both uh, short-term and long-term. Short-term, it provides for more police officers, significantly more police officers. It provides for about $10 billion to expand jails and prisons to take care of 
uh, the problems created by violent criminals and criminals that have to go to prison. It expands some of the penalties. It creates the death penalty in a number of areas. So there are strict enforcement measures that are put into this bill. And about $18 billion in funding goes toward enforcement, police, jails, prisons. On the other side of it, it tries uh, a long-term approach to crime as well, to try to give children, young people, more hope, to try to have more programs in their communities where crime is high so that youngsters can learn uh, something other than violence as a way of uh, working their way out of uh, difficulties. That was the mayor of New York City at the time, Rudy Giuliani, and one of the staunchest, fiercest supporters of President Donald Trump, who has been quick to criticize the crime bill and one of its chief sponsors, Senator Joe Biden at the time. Yeah, that's correct. And I think the thing that he said in that clip, that uh, former Mayor Giuliani said in the clip, is absolutely correct. This was a short and long-term approach. But what we see as a result of it was that only the short-term aspects of this really continued long-term. So we were talking about the uh, incentivization to uh, build more prisons or truth in sentencing laws so that somebody has to serve 85% of their time. So parole and things like that were reduced. Those are the lasting, uh, that's the lasting legacy of the crime bill. If you look at the way that, for example, states are now spending dollars that were originated from the 94 crime bill, and they have leeway to do that. They're spending that, by and large, on enforcement. Whereas we're looking at states spending dollars, those dollars, on prevention activities, and that is a very small percentage. We're talking about single-digit percentage versus over half of the amount of money available through Burn Jag that's spent on prosecution, that's spent on law enforcement. So the enduring legacy is that those short-term enforcement approaches were the ones that lasted. And that then contributed to the continuing and increasing incarceration that we've only recently seen uh, turn the tide in the country now. So based on that, what were the mistakes as Congress debated this back in the early 1990s? Well, the mistakes were that we emphasized way too much on enforcement. Now, uh, it's not saying that enforcement wasn't necessary. And it's not saying that we didn't need at the time an approach that included a different way for law enforcement to engage communities. But the overwhelming emphasis on law enforcement and the overwhelming emphasis on long prison sentences created and continued the climate in the United States of tough on crime. There, a professor at Fordham Law, John Pfaff, talks about the fact that prosecutors in the 1990s chose to and were incentivized to and were encouraged to take cases that were misdemeanors and make them into felonies and take felonies and make them into more serious felonies. So these were deliberate choices that the culture and the climate uh, incentivized. Now, if we had the same type of culture and climate that really overwhelmingly pushed the long-term prevention side and invested in communities, then that would have been potentially something that created less damage than what we've seen in the past couple decades. There was bipartisan support for this, correct? Correct. There was. And it is not a partisan issue. Crime has never been really a partisan issue, meaning that up until recently, people have either been accusing each other of not being tough on tough tough enough or have been accusing each other of being too soft that's been the rhetoric and one party may have been catching up with the other another party might have been accusing the other but the issue here is that there hadn't been 
a real race to the other side. There's always been a race to be tougher. And I think the voices finally over the last five to 10 years have been coming the other way, that we need to be smarter, we need to be more compassionate, we need to understand the longer-term consequences and not just give it lip service like a lot of folks have done in, in years past, but really invest money, dollars, strategy, research, and evidence into it. I want to come back to that point because I think it's very important and talk about, among other organizations, My Brother's Keeper. But take us back to the early 90s. What was the crime rate like in this country? What propelled this bill that really became a signature achievement by President Bill Clinton early in his first term? Sure. We're looking at, let's let's take it even back further. So in 1980, we're looking at a violent crime rate of about 400 per 100,000. And in 1991, we're looking at about 758 uh, per 100,000. So almost a doubling in a period of about a decade. And so you're facing higher levels uh, of violent crime in 1991. Now, 1991 is when that violent crime rate and the overall crime rate began decreasing. So this was before the enactment of the 94 bill. And this was before, obviously, the money started flowing even to states. So the crime rate began to come, began to decrease. But again, we got to remember that these big, huge bills don't happen overnight. And they've been, they were years in the making. And some of this, these bills had been debated in 1991, um, and even earlier than that. And so we're looking at elevated levels of violent crime, and we're looking at communities all across the country looking at their government officials and elected officials on a solution. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with Ed Chung. He is Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. The web address is AmericanProgress.org. And let me go back to your earlier point about when the tide began to turn over the last five to 10 years. We had tougher penalties. We had a high rate of imprisonment. And then we had these inmates who were released only to end up back in jail a short while later. Well, let me even go further than that. Um, we're talking about five to 10 years when this has become a national story. And a lot uh, happened during the Obama administration to really place a spotlight on the issue of criminal justice reform. But there have been activists that have been calling for this for decades and people working in states for decades. I think one of the major things that had happened was in the mid-2000s, there have been states across the ideological spectrum or led by officials across the ideological spectrum who saw their prison budgets swelling because of mass incarceration. And they were looking for a solution to reduce their population because it would save money. So there was a new cohort of people who came to the table to address this issue. And then again, elevate it with those who had been working on this from a justice angle all along. And so you're seeing that, you were seeing that um, real push at the state level and the local level uh, by elected officials working in partnership with uh, advocates and stakeholders to turn the tide in the prison population. Now, there's a lot that needs to be done, but over the past 10 years, I think it's safe to say that the national attention on surfacing issues that have been dormant or under-studied or under-reported on uh, rose to the surface even more. And that's why we're seeing a lot more attention, especially uh, recently, on criminal justice reform issues. And as you know, another key component of this 1994 crime bill was getting tough on adolescents who were involved in drug abuse, the sale of drugs, or even petty crimes. Here's what President Bill Clinton said during the signing ceremony, again, September 13th, 1994, at the White House. Not so long ago, kids grew up knowing they'd have to pay if they broke a neighbor's window playing ball. I know, I did it once. 
They knew they'd be in trouble if they lied or stole because their parents and teachers and neighbors cared enough to set them straight. And everybody knew that anybody who committed a serious crime would be caught and convicted and would serve their time in jail. The rules were simple, the results were predictable, and we lived better because of it. Punishment was swift and certain for people who didn't follow the rules, and the rewards of America were considerable for those who did. Now, too many kids don't have parents who care. Gangs and drugs have taken over our streets and undermined our schools. Every day we read about somebody else who has literally gotten away with murder. Ed Chung, as you hear President Bill Clinton, your reaction? I think there's a real othering of people here where you're talking about uh, a population in neutral terms. But we're talk- when we go back to the 90s, when you think about the family values era that was uh, happening in the country and the real scapegoating of populations, especially black Americans, especially in cities and uh, places where there had been a lot of disinvestment and blame. You're talking about the backdrop that caused the, uh, the ability for people in positions of power to use incarceration as the method to control and to then put more people behind bars where sympathetic, empathetic, and much more comprehensive methods and measures could have been uh, pushed even further. And so you look at the type of language that was used, um, not only by in the clip that you just mentioned, but across the spectrum. And then you see the disparities in incarceration from before that and continuing on in the 90s and 2000s among uh, black and Latinos compared to their white counterparts. And you see how mass incarceration continues on and on. And so I think whenever we look at crime and we look at uh, public safety, we have to make sure that we look at it in a comprehensive, holistic way, not just trying to blame families or not just trying to blame lack of structures and and put on kind of a a hat to uh, analyze in that situation, but to really look at the evidence of what is causing crime and what is causing uh, social conflicts and so forth. I want to follow up on that in just a moment because you have put together, along with your colleagues at the Center for American Progress, your recommendations, changes to dismantle the 1994 crime bill. But in the current political environment, President Donald Trump has been critical of this bill going after Joe Biden former vice president. And back in the 1990s, he was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee on the Senate floor. We carried it live on C-SPAN 2. Here's what he said about the crime bill. Unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, because they literally, I yield myself three more minutes, because they literally have not been socialized. They literally have not had an opportunity. We should focus on them now, not out of a liberal instinct for love, brother, and humanity, although I think that's a good instinct, but for simple, pragmatic reasons. If we don't, they will, or a portion of them will, become the predators 15 years from now. 
And Madam President, we have predators on our streets that society has, in fact, in part because of its neglect, created. Again, it does not mean because we created them that we somehow forgive them or do not take them out of society to protect my family and yours from them. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. Beyond the pale. And it's a sad commentary on society. We have no choice but to take them out of society. That was from November of 1993 on the Senate floor, then chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Joe Biden, Democrat of Delaware, now a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. Ten months later on the South Lawn of the White House, this from then Vice President Al Gore, commenting on the role that Joe Biden played in the crime bill. Now, the people who have really done more than anybody else with the exception of the president. I want to single out for special recognition the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee who has fought tirelessly for this bill for six long years, Senator Joe Biden. Would you stand, Senator Joe Biden? Joe, your wait is is almost over. You're going to see the president's signature in just a few minutes. That from September of 1994. And so, Ed Chung, again, another sample of where the country was, where the debate was on this bill. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we need to pay attention to is what we've learned in the last 25 years, and especially when it comes to young people. And one thing that science has confirmed to us is that a young person, especially a young man's uh, maturity and brain development doesn't end until they are in their mid-20s. And so the physiological aspects of brain development and how it affects how a person behaves in their young adult life is something that is crucial to our understanding of crime and how people behave in schools and what they do in their young adult life. That understanding is something that now shapes public safety policies, criminal justice policies, education policies. And that's something that may not have been known 25 years ago. So the learning has changed and evolved. Now, this isn't to say that we need to excuse the um, developments that have happened or in, in 94 or in 86 or whatever it may be. But there has been confirmation of things that people had uh, known otherwise, and again, new information that really plays into more things than just family construct, than just things uh, that we have about stereotypes in terms of certain communities, in terms of certain races, and so forth. So based on your expertise, your research, and your own personal views, why should the crime bill be dismantled, and how do you do that? Well, I think there are a lot of parts of the crime bill that continue to this day, especially the funding aspects of the bill. So the the incentivization that happened from the crime bill uh, needed to happen through the only mechanisms that really are afforded to the federal government when it comes to criminal justice. A lot of that revolves around grants to states. And the mechanisms that were put in place in 1994 
continue today. And so one of the largest, for example, um, formula grants that was started in the 94 bill and continued and modified afterwards was the Burn Justice Assistance Grants. These Burn JAG grants are basically uh, revised block grants that allow states to prioritize among seven uh, categories of where they're going to spend their money. It includes things like prevention and it includes things like law enforcement and courts and so forth. The way that we allow states to prioritize where they're going to invest is something that I think needs to take a, that we need to take another look at. Not that states shouldn't have a voice. Obviously, states have differences and they need to know what's happening in their own jurisdictions in order to improve public safety. But at the same time, what we've seen over the years is left without many checks, states are going to support law enforcement over other types of uh, public safety uh, strategies, whether it's prevention, whether it's reentry, whether it's alternatives to incarceration and so forth. So our piece in, uh, that you can find at AmericanProgress.org really shows uh, the amount of investment that was made in law enforcement in prisons. If there is something that Congress can do to change the formula or to put more guidelines around what states can do and how they report their data back to the federal government, that would be incredibly helpful for the nation uh, going forward. As well as looking at all the grants, including the COPS grants, including uh, some of the other juvenile justice grants that were uh, authorized by the 94 Crime Bill. I think that really would take us a big step forward. And I remember part of the debate where politicians would say, lock them up and throw away the key. But if you're in jail for 5, 10, 15 years, you're going to be released. Released to what? That's correct. And one of the biggest issues here is how long first should you be in jail, but afterwards or in prison? And afterwards... What is your community going to be like and what opportunities do you have afterwards? So we all know that basic necessities of life, housing, employment, education, health care, and what ability do people have coming out of prison in order to, to get those in a meaningful way? Because if you don't have those, then what? how are you able to succeed? How are you able to reintegrate into your community? If you have a family, how are you able to support your family? So there is a lot of bipartisan, non-ideological emphasis on reentry and the ability to start reentry from an early point in the criminal justice system. At the same time, however, part of the thing that we need to focus on and even focus on more than reentry, in my opinion, is making sure that fewer people get in the system in the first place, because these are policy choices that bring a lot of people into the system that may not need to be there. And so if you don't have that system contact to begin with, it's obviously much easier and give, give you a better shot at life uh, in the first place. Because one of the things I think you're hearing, whether it's then-Senator Joe Biden or from former President Bill Clinton, is getting tough on adolescent crimes, those gangs, those involved in petty thefts. And yet these are the, the very individuals that might be out of prison from their early to mid-20s Again, that same point, coming back to society to deal with what? Exactly. And the age issue is, again, something that I think we should emphasize because one of one thing that researchers have shown is that people age out of a time period 
when they are most likely, especially men, when they're most likely to commit crimes. And so we're talking about, you know, 16, 17, 18 to 35, 30, 35. And then it decreases from that point on. And some academics have contributed the decrease in crime from the 90s on to an aging population more than anything else. There are other factors as well. But if you're in those years, especially, you know, you're early 20s, mid-20s, when people who aren't incarcerated and people who aren't involved in the criminal justice system are building their lives and building their life skills, um, and you don't have those opportunities, you know, at all, then your chances at any kind of success uh, afterwards is going to be really stunted. Is this a legitimate political issue? Is the criticism aimed at Vice President Joe Biden fair criticism or unfair? I think the criticism doesn't have to or should be on any particular single candidate. I think what voters today are looking for is a candidate who understands the entire picture and not just taking one policy here, whether it may be on you know, policing or, or sentencing, but looks at the big picture overall and lays out a vision for that. There are very few people running for president right now who have laid out that vision and in a comprehensive way to capture all of this and not just using the 94 crime bill or any other you know, federal or state legislation as a point, as a, dri- as a wedge to drive uh, between candidates. I think the issue here is, do you take this seriously, which I, obviously I believe they should, and what are you actually going to do about it? Afterwards, then voters can evaluate whether or not you're sincere about it, whether you're actually going to follow through on it. But until you actually put forward a platform and your ideas about how to reform the criminal justice system, reduce mass incarceration, and have a new vision for public safety, voters aren't going to have a real sense of whether you're taking this seriously. To be clear, are you saying to dismantle the entire crime bill or simply make it changes and adjustments? No, I think there are, and to, uh, thanks for the clarification point, because there are and were good parts of the crime bill. I think when you took a look at the Violence Against Women Act, that was a, an underreported crime, to say the least, an under-enforced crime. Um, and VAWA has shown that the four crimes of stalking and domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, dating violence have received more attention, but more needs to be done. There were other good things that were repealed. For example, um, the assault weapons ban, and people can have difference of opinion on that, but those are things that were in the bill. What I'm talking about, the thing that needs to be dismantled, is this incentivization of states and localities to rely on our traditional enforcement mechanisms as a sole primary and overwhelming mechanism for public safety. That needs to change because research has shown that mass incarceration, long sentences, lots of arrests, making the crimes more seriously is not what contributes to public safety for the long term, and it does more harm and damage than good in a lot of instances. It is so apparent sitting here talking with you, the passion that you have for this issue why? Why is this your motivation? I started out my career as a prosecutor, and I, as a local prosecutor in New York City, and I saw, I was prosecuting drug crimes mostly, and I saw what happens uh, in drug courts, and not only drug courts, but in courts, when, it, when, it's, when we come to uh, people over and over and over again coming back, being rearrested uh, for these crimes. And one of the things that kind of clicked for me uh, was that there has to be a better way. And people have been talking about this for a long time. And so 
I changed my career and want to devote it to something that helps people uh, have long-term success and not just use uh, a method that is uh, for short-term gain. And so uh, I think more and more people are looking at it that way, and there are a lot of people with different motivations. For me, I, you know, you're looking at an unjust system, and I think correcting that unjust system and providing better strategies and solutions uh, long-term is what really motivates me. And so finally, your message to Congress, to public officials, to those involved in the criminal justice system, and to the country in general on the crime bill, your message is what? We can't just rely on things because we're, we've done it the same way. We need to reimagine and look at it a wholly different way. And don't take this moment where you have bipartisan support, where you have uh, people from all across the ideological spectrum looking at this issue for granted. You really need to take advantage of a moment where people are invested in this issue, the activists, the advocates, the researchers, the elected officials who are looking at it. We need to take big, bold steps and not just incremental ones. Will we see that change? I'm hopeful. Really hopeful. Ed Chung, he is vice president in charge of criminal justice reform at the Center for American Progress here in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us in our studios. Really appreciate it. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app. All of our programming online at cspan.org, part of the video library, now with more than 250,000 hours of content. We thank you for listening.